Hey friends, this is part four in our bonus five-part mini-series called The Alpha Particle. So far, we've seen that helium is nothing more than a byproduct of radioactive decay. Its nucleus is literally the alpha particle. This time, we'll learn about some of those implications for our planet. We'll revisit the alpha particle, as well as a host of other new particle beasties in the coming year. If you have any questions about this stuff, or anything in particle physics really, feel free to leave them wherever is convenient for you, even right here in the iTunes comment section, or you know, reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or wherever you normally hang out. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Field Guide to Particle Physics. This is your informal guide to the subatomic ecosystem that we're all immersed in. Our aim is to give us all a better foundation for understanding our place in the universe. Today, we are talking about the geophysical implications of a massive amount of radioactive decay. Helium, neon, and argon are all noble gases. None of them react to form chemicals, really. As the chemists are fond of saying, their electron valence shells are filled. So why is helium such a scarce resource, while argon, in particular, makes up a sizable fraction of our atmosphere? In a word, density. Helium is much less dense a gas than neon or argon. With only two protons and two neutrons, helium is about 10 times less dense than the air that we typically breathe here on Earth. Just like air bubbles underwater, balloons full of helium rise in the atmosphere because they're less dense than the surrounding media. Something similar can be said about heavy things. Rain falls from the sky when water vapor condenses to form droplets of liquid water. That liquid is much more dense than the air around it, so it falls, all the way down, to Earth. A similar thing happens inside the Earth. It's a little less intuitive, because rocks and dirt are typically solids, but denser material tends to sink towards the center of the Earth. Of course, that sinking takes place on a geological timescale, not a human one. Really heavy elements like uranium and thorium aren't terribly common up here near the surface of the Earth. But inside, there's quite a bit of both. And we're very lucky that that is so. Deep in the Earth, uranium and thorium decay. They're radioactive, as we discussed last time. They occasionally decay by spitting out an alpha particle. An alpha particle, you might recall, is nothing but a helium nucleus. That alpha particle eventually soaks up a couple of electrons from the surrounding environment, turns into helium, and begins to rise literally through the cracks. It eventually pools in underground wells, as discussed in part two of this series. This is a long process, and not just because it takes a while for helium atoms to migrate all the way up to those subsurface wells. The real bottleneck is alpha decay. In some sense, it's a pretty uncommon event. A typical uranium-238 nucleus lives for about four and a half billion years. And each event only produces one helium atom. Trying to build an intuition for atoms and molecules is difficult because they're so small. They are so small, and there are so many of them. What does it mean to say that a typical MRI machine might go through a million, billion, billion helium atoms in a given year? Frankly, I'm not sure, but it's a lot, 
especially considering how long it takes for a uranium nucleus to decay. The reason we have any helium around at all is because we have so much uranium here in the Earth. The Earth is so big. Rather than attempt to wildly estimate the rate at which helium is produced deep underground, it's probably better to explain that uranium lifetime, that four and a half billion years, a bit more precisely. In part three of this series, we explained that alpha decay was a random sort of thing. It was a quantum tunneling event, as the physicists are fond of saying. It's not guaranteed to happen at any given point in time, but it happens at a typical rate. For uranium-238, that's about once every four and a half billion years. But that framing is a little misleading. When folks say that uranium-238 has a typical lifetime of four and a half billion years, they are usually referencing its half-life. And the half-life is a technical term used by scientists to model the decays of radioactive elements. But it's a pretty easy term to understand. The half-life of an isotope like uranium-238 is the time it takes for half of that material to decay. So in four and a half billion years, about the age of the Earth, half of the uranium-238 present today will decay to thorium-234. For each one of those decays, we'll get a new atom of helium. You might see now how helium is such a non-renewable resource. In some sense, about half of all the helium that we could ever get from uranium-238 on Earth has already been formed. And in the next four and a half billion years, we're only going to get half more of that half. While we don't really know how much that is, it's still a pretty sizable amount. Of course, the really challenging part, which we discussed in part two, is getting the helium that's left out of the ground. Every time a nucleus decays underground, energy is released. A good chunk of that energy goes into the motion of the ejected particle, like the alpha particle. Those particles bounce around in the Earth's mantle and crust, banging into all kinds of other atoms, distributing that energy around. Those kinds of atomic collisions are what we talk about when we talk about heat. You see, heat is nothing more than the motion of individual atoms. If it's a fluid, like a helium gas, say, that heat amounts to the actual kinetic energy of the individual atoms. If it's a solid, it's more of a vibrational energy that the individual atoms are kind of shaking with together. Nuclear decays contribute a lot of heat to the Earth. Physicists have estimated that the annual heat radiated by all the radioactivity of uranium and thorium decays amounts to about 20 trillion watts. Now, it's a bit like comparing apples to oranges, but this value isn't that far from the 17.7 trillion watts of electrical power consumed by all of humanity in 2020. That's a lot of heat, and we feel the effects of that radioactive-driven heat all the time. Radioactivity isn't really keeping you warm at night, not unless you're sitting in a geothermal hot spring, perhaps near Yellowstone National Park. Light and other radiation from the sun does most of the warming of our planet's surface and the atmosphere. But inside the Earth is another matter. Physicists estimate that about half of the Earth's internal heat is driven by radioactive decay. And that's a tremendous amount of heat. Heat being heat flows. It tries to warm up colder things. 
The heat from inside the Earth, where temperatures are measured in the thousands of degrees, flows towards the surface. And sometimes it pops out. Volcanic eruptions, geysers, and steam vents are all common all around the Earth. The intense heat inside the Earth is believed to liquefy rock, the mantle, and cause a churning or convection of that fluid, just like you'd see in a steaming cup of coffee or tea, but on a planetary scale. The most apparent effect of all that churning has been a model for the evolution of the surface of the Earth called plate tectonics. All our known landmasses on Earth are just bits of crust shuffling around on the Earth's churning molten mantle. Reality is more nuanced than that, of course, but the analogy works well enough. How fascinating that the forces that create the very surface of the Earth, the mountains, the oceans, and the continents, are driven by radioactive decay. Helium, the alpha particle, is in some sense the byproduct of the Earth's internal heat engine. Hopefully that finally answered the question, what on Earth does helium have to do with particle physics? But don't worry, we've got one more episode for you. Did you know that the sun is bombarding us continuously with dangerous radiation of its own? Not just light, but actual massive particles, like hydrogen ions, are traveling at us at high speeds every single day. Next time, we'll see how the Earth's internal heat, driven by nuclear radiation, actually works to protect us from all of that dangerous solar radiation. This has been an installment of the Field Guide to Particle Physics, a copyrighted production of the Poseidon Institute. Thank you so much for listening. For a full, free, online copy of the Field Guide, please visit our website at poseidon.org or follow us on Instagram. We've got a lot of other resources for you there. At the Poseidon Institute, we're on a mission to build and share physics knowledge without barriers. Come learn with us. Music